My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Else for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm part of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like glue. I'm also autistic. This is our 20th episode of the podcast, our adult services building capital campaign with special guest Pam Manelli. I would mark this episode if it was an Outlook email as important. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things you would like to have on the written record for all of you four autism fans. There are some news and updates about the foundation first. So the first item is about episode 19. Tune into our last episode, episode 19, where we talked to Tom Keg of Next Level Distribution about his partnership with our work experience program, which concluded in the last month. Listening, you will find an individual who speaks about his experiences working as a part of his company and as being a part of putting neurodiversity to work with a lot of heart. It's always good to have a friend in the field, so thanks, Mr. Keg. Oh, and listen to the whole program to get an idea of what we were started, um, of what we were doing as a foundation during that time, and learn something new about the autism community for our uh, Today in the World of Autism segment. We would like to ask for new volunteers for our fall programs. This is a call for new volunteers and other parts of our infrastructure that serve as great ways to help us in doing our jobs. Volunteers will be expected for tennis, golf, art, music therapy, development, reception, and other positions. A link to the website and to our Google Docs sheet for new volunteers will be in our show notes. Make sure to not remove anyone's name who is already volunteering with us and if you are 18 or over, it is imperative to pass a level two background check first before becoming one. This month, it was decided that our blog article should be a press release for our capital campaign to fund the adult services building. Make sure to bookmark our blog category on our show notes to read the release when it gets published. On Sunday, October 24th, we had a fantastic grand finale eve event with a fantastic turnout on our golf course grounds and I was there with our employment coordinator, Howard Thomas, to inform our guests about the Adult Services Building's capital campaign. We had food trucks, our CF Possibilities micro-business, help from our other micro-business, We Are Foodies, chocolate-covered pretzels from the Chocolate Spectrum, and music performed by the Jupiter Acoustic Duo, Leafy Green. It was great to see so many people come together to celebrate the differences that we have been making to the autistic community. A day later, on Monday, October 25th, we had our grand finale awards ceremony and gala at the Pelican Club in Jupiter, Florida. Needless to say, we also had a fantastic turnout with a lot of impressed people. It's always good to celebrate altruism. Next item is about We Are Foodies. Besides making their presence known at our grand finale eve, We Are Foodies has started up their next cohort for hungry people for the holidays. 
We Are Foodies is a micro-business that started around the time that COVID-19 dramatically impacted our work culture. What our clients do is to learn the basics of food service by selling public subs and a lot of other goodies, collecting the money from the sales and replenishing inventory among other, sales, other skills. For the first few weeks, they sell on campus and for events that we may have, and then it is out to the community to feed hungry people at different stations to enhance these work skills. If you want to see what there will be next, take a look at the We Are Foodies Facebook page, where I'll promote the micro business through photos, promotions, and other groovy things. Our next item is about the family fun night. After our first family fun night for the season, Scoob, last month, our rec coordinator, Kelly Coots, has decided to show The Lion King on Friday, November 19th to celebrate the month of our American Thanksgiving. Family fun nights involve concessions and treats, games, networking for our families, and a movie at the center. Usually, we like to do it on the Friday of the middle of each month. To learn more about these nights, contact Kelly Coots and I show notes for more details. We have a very special episode for everyone listening. The first Tuesday after Thanksgiving or the 30th of November for this year is known as Giving Tuesday, which is started by an organization of the same name to promote awareness and transformative contributions to organizations, charities, and causes near and dear to each person's heart. Started in 2012, co-founded by the United Nations Foundation, Giving Tuesday has unleashed the power of the world for a great impact on charitable giving and donations. Our newest building on campus will be the Adult Services Building, which will serve as a beacon for all of our adult clients and our department that services them. While there are plenty of childhood and educational programs for individuals with autism, it's more difficult to help those who have passed the age of 21 and thus don't have the public school system to fall back on. What we in the foundation have been doing is addressing this gap in services by providing a wide variety of programs and services to an adult population in need. Yet while so much of our donations have been raised, we still need an extra amount to bring us past the finish line and to see the AS building open in 2023. Our guest today works for the foundation in a very important role, and she has an adult on the spectrum who would benefit greatly from the formation and the finishing of an adult services building. Her name is Pam Minnelli. She is one of our board members, a former director of development, and co-chair of our Adult Services Building Capital Campaign, who has been a bulldog for the foundation on our educational curricula since the very beginning. And she is joining us to talk to us about the building and the campaign. Thank you for being on our show tonight, Pam. Well, thank you, Merrick. That's the first time I can recall being introduced as a bulldog, but I like it. <laughs> I, think, I think it's pretty appropriate um, for uh, me as a parent of a young man with autism. I think as a parent, you kind of have to be a bit of a bulldog um, in trying to make sure that your son or daughter gets the services they need. So great intro. Thanks. Yes. Welcome to the For Autism podcast. Thanks for joining us, Pam. And so Let's start off, uh, Merrick and I know you well, of course, but can you introduce yourself and talk about your role with the foundation? Sure, so um, like I mentioned, I'm uh, most 
first and foremost, a mom of a young man with autism who's actually going to turn 24 this Thursday. Um, I was, as, as Merrick mentioned, uh, for the past five years, uh, the director of development for Ellis for Autism. I retired in December of uh, 2020, but I continue to be an active board member and am currently, along with my uh, good friend and fellow board member, Cindy Lagenfeld, uh, the co-chair for our capital campaign. Yeah, that's terrific. And I know I speak for everyone at the foundation, but we're very happy and lucky that you continue to, um, to play a role with our development. And can you, um, so we know that you have a child who is an adult with autism. Would you like to tell our listening audit audience a little about them and how our programs and resources have impacted them and your family as a whole? So like I mentioned, um, my son Andrew is gonna be 24 this week. Um, he has, has attended in the past both of the schools that are on our campus. So um, the Learning Center, he started there as a student when he was um, just about almost four years old. Um, at the time, there were five students in the school. And I think now between the two schools, we're up around 270, 280. Um, he graduated from the Learning Academy uh, in May of 2020, right in the middle of lockdown, um, which is, I think most parents can understand that was a very difficult time, still continues to be a very difficult time for many of our families. Um, virtual school did not work for Andrew. Andrew's nonverbal. Um, so he, you know, would look at the laptop, but he kind of more thought he was watching a video of his teachers and actually <laughs> needing to pay attention um, and do some work. Uh, so we were super uh, happy and excited that he was able to um, go back to campus uh, two days a week, starting in July of 2020, um, to join the adult day program. And that program uh, started, like I said, last last July in 2020 it was the first program um, to reopen when the campus uh, started its gradual reopening. And, you know, again, for families like us, where, you know, my son had basically been home with me and my husband for four months um, to get him, you know, back into a routine and a schedule. It was, you know, kind of rough going to begin with, but uh, best thing for him, obviously, to get him back into a routine, um, best thing for our family. And now the program um, is running five days a week. Uh, and it's really, you know, in a tremendous resource um, for families of adults um, whose, uh, whose child have aged out of the school system. Absolutely. And as an aside, Andrew is a very good tennis player also <laughs> just to work with them out there. Now, Nate, you must tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a good tennis player, but he gave it a shot. 
He's a very spirited player. Nate is a very patient person. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So our next big funding project is for an adult services building. Can you tell us the journey to getting where we are now with the building and how it celebrates our mission of being a one-stop shop, fulfilling the life cycle of anyone with autism? Well, the adult services building has always been uh, right from the beginning um, on the plans for the campus. Um, when Ernie and Liesel started uh, Else for Autism with Marvin Shankin, our three co-founders, uh, they had a vision that um, anyone with autism throughout uh, their life would be able to come to the center for services, um, whether they were under two years old and not yet diagnosed to someone in their 50s and 60s um, still needing support and services. So it's always been part of the plan um, to have an adult services building, um, but it really kind of kicked off uh, in a big way our our campaign uh, to build that building when we got our kind of our first lead gift Um, in 2018, um, followed there by another amazing pledge and gift uh, by my campaign co-chair, Cindy Lagenfeld, and her husband, Randy, in 2020. Um, So we kind of were ready to go. We had raised all the funds uh, that we thought would be necessary to build that building. And then, as we know, COVID hit. um, And you know, obviously we had to put the plans on hold for a period of time when we went back to the builders and said, okay, you know, we're ready to go. Give us, you know, give us your updated um, estimates. We thought there might be a little uh, increase in the price, but really um, with supply chain and everything that's uh, impacted really the global economy with COVID, the cost for the building was actually 30% higher than we had originally planned for and budgeted for. So we've kind of like re-kicked off the campaign um, to try to raise those additional funds um, so that we can go ahead and start the building and have all the funds to be able to build it. So kind of uh, a little bit, if you will, phase two of the capital campaign for the adult services building. But um, we're really confident that uh, the community is gonna rally around us and help us uh, kind of push through to the finish line to raise those additional funds. Yeah, that's terrific. And if there's anyone who can accomplish this project, it's. It's going to be Ernie, Liesel, Pam, and Sydney. So we got a, a good team in place working on this. Can you also explain for our audience the different highlights of our adult services building for when it is complete and what is special about the design of the building? So, like all the buildings um, on the campus, Uh, the two schools, the auditorium, the pavilion, um, the adult services building will be purpose built. Uh, So it will include um, a lot of the uh, special design features of the other buildings. For example, um, technology throughout the buildings, um, cameras um, in all of the kind of public spaces and classrooms, 
The walls will be again lined with what's called a crusta block to keep the noise and the distraction down between rooms. Um, LED lighting, so no buzzing, flickering, uh, fluorescent lights. So all of those um, kind of features that are already throughout the campus and the other buildings, but also a bunch of features specifically for um, our, our adult clients. So for example, uh, we will have some features there to support some micro businesses, which would be businesses that would be um, run and staffed uh, by our adult clients. We'll have a drive-through cafe coffee shop. So if your child goes to the learning center and you're dropping them off in the morning, you can swing by the coffee shop uh, on your way out and uh, get some coffee or a donut um, and support our adults um, who are working in that cafe. We'll have a gift shop. Um, we already have an amazing micro business um, being run uh, by the adults in the adult day training program called the Sea of Possibilities. Um, they take all kinds of beautiful um, raw materials from, from the beach, sand and shells and create some beautiful um, artwork and um, retail items. So we'll have a gift shop in there. Uh, we will have on the second floor a two-bedroom suite um, with obviously beds and a kitchen so that life skills training um, can continue to happen. We have, um, we have those apartments currently in the schools today, but as we all know, just because someone has graduated school doesn't mean that their, their training and their education needs to stop. So we'll have all that life skills training uh, that we started in the schools, uh, there in the adult services building. Um, we'll have vocational spaces um, as well, a golf pro shop, a grocery store front, um, everything we can do to continue to support um, our adults with life skills training and vocational training. Um, and of course, recreation. We've already have uh, on the campus uh, a great tennis court. We have a golf course. Um, so we'll continue supporting the adults um, in the building with vocational life skills and then throughout the campus um, with recreational and social opportunities. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear about all of the development and what the finished product will look like. So I'm, I'm going to hand it over to Merrick here for some additional questions. Yeah, um, it's very fascinating hearing about the plans uh, for this building. And I want to wish Andrew a happy early birthday. Um, and uh, I guess when I am there at the foundation on Thursday, I'll try to come up with a cake or some kind of way if I see him like walking across the front lobby I'll be like happy birthday Andrew happy birthday to you or something else I'll just make up my own special happy birthday Andrew so Merrick yeah I'm I'm sending in gluten-free dairy-free cupcakes so if you time it well Go, go into his uh, classroom at that time so you can get a cupcake. Oh, oh, well, 
it's not me who needs to be treated it's him on that day <laughs> so i i already uh as anyone who has seen me in person already knows i i think i've treated myself enough it's 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 good to treat other people too um <laughs> But uh, anyways, uh, my first question is this. Um, why is it so important that our foundation directly address adults? And do you believe that the population has been underserved at large? Um, so I'll answer your the second part of your question first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the adult population is, is underserved. Um, you read a lot of articles where they talk about uh, the tsunami of adults um, coming. So when Andrew was diagnosed, I believe the numbers at that time were one in 500 or maybe one in 250. And as we know now, the numbers are one in 54. So, you know, the rate continues to increase. Um, and, you know, when Andrew was younger, there were some supports and services, but not a lot for, you know, little guys. And I think today there's a lot more, uh, could always be more. Um, but now, you know, those guys that were diagnosed 20 years ago, uh, 15, 20 years ago are, are adults. And I think um, the organizations are trying to, you know, kind of play some catch up and making sure that uh, you know, we spent a lot of time and money on education and supports, and then all of a sudden, someone's 22 years old, you know, it doesn't mean they don't need those supports anymore. So um, the second part of your question is, yeah, very underserved. And obviously, uh, coming back to Ernie Liesel's vision of a one-stop shop um, and a place where people could come throughout their lifetime for support, the continuum of services is very, very critical. And, and we see that in our high school. Every year, our high school graduates somewhere between 10 and 20 adults. And there are not a lot of programs in our area or really in any area uh, to support those adults um, in their, you know, in their goals of, either continuing their education, finding a job, or finding a, a meaningful uh, day program for which they can continue to grow their skills. So yeah, just because you graduate high school doesn't mean your, you know, your support needs um, and your need for additional training and help go away. Okay. So um, I also know that you're a co-chair of the Capital Campaign Committee. As you've mentioned before, uh, one of your uh, board colleagues, uh, uh, Cindy Langenfeld, is another uh, chair, co-chair of the Capital Campaign Committee. So what is the Adult Services Building ca Capital Campaign and why is it so important? Um, so, like I said, this is kind of, you know, a 2.0 relaunch <laughs> for this building. Um, and what we're really targeting is to raise uh, that increase um, that we saw in the cost of the building brought, brought about by 
COVID and supply chain constraints and, you know, just the price of everything uh, going up. So it's really important and significant because, you know, we're ready to build this building um, and we're out of space um, for our adults on campus. Um, right now, I think, I believe by the end of the month, we'll be at um, full capacity for our adult day training program. We have no more space. And if you go around the campus, you'll see our work experience program where we are doing um, training uh, for those adults who have a goal to work in the community. We're, you know, we're kind of borrowing space from the pavilion and we're borrowing space from the high school. So we're really, you know, we're really at a critical point here where we continue um, every year to have more and more adults who are looking for services and need services. And we're basically out of space on campus. So we really need um, to get that building started and uh, to be able to serve a lot more adults in the next 18 months. Yeah, from my experiences, uh, handling uh, the phone calls that we get um, at the foundation, I've gotten many, many calls from people and many people asking me questions related to their adults, um, to their adult children who are on the spectrum. And so there's definitely a, a very significant need for something like this to uh, be built. I will definitely say that. Um, so, uh, my second to last question is this, um, what are the giving opportunities from monetary to in kind that people can do with the adult services building? Do any of these opportunities also have greater value than just being listed as a donor? That's a very interesting question, Merrick. Let me think about that for a minute. So any of the opportunities have a greater value than just being listed as a donor. So, so what we do um, for, uh, we have what we call naming opportunities um, for the building, um, ranging from $50,000 and above. You, can, you could put your name or your family's name on a classroom, the director's office, therapy rooms, um, activity rooms, um, we also have the same opportunity for businesses who would want to give an in-kind donation. So for example, if you wanted to donate um, uh, food service equipment for our cafe or, or technology, printers, laptops, smart boards, um, furnishings, landscaping, plumbing, cameras, air conditioning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have those naming opportunities as well for businesses. But I think um, whether someone is considering donating um, financially or with in-kind services or materials, what really has greater value um, than you know, your name on a plaque is the fact that you are helping pave the way for, for so many adults. Um, and as you, as you know, Merrick and, and Nate, you know, you're, you're in school, our, our, our kids are in school for 18 years, maybe, maybe a little bit longer, but they are adults for 50 years after. Um, 
you know, most people with autism will live uh, a very long life and they need the opportunity to be able to uh, contribute to the community, to be involved in the community um, and to continue and to learn and grow as, as we all do. Um, and I think that anyone who gets involved uh, with the adult services building is gonna have that satisfaction that they're helping uh, really an underserved population, adults with autism and other developmental disabilities for a, for a very, very long time. So I think that to me has you know, much greater value um, than name on the plaque is great. And we're happy to do that and we love to do that. But it's really um, knowing that you are really helping people for a very long time in their lives. Thank you so much for uh, going into the heart of this whole thing. You know, people are not just, you know, whether they give financially or in kind, they're giving with their heart and they're giving with their heart and soul. And I think that that is definitely very important to emphasize here. Um, but um, before we end this interview, um, anything else you would like to share with our audience? So I'm gonna go back to where you started, Merrick, when you talked about Giving Tuesday um, and Giving Tuesday is November 30th this year. Uh, we have a lot of fun things planned. Um, we we uh, Ellis for Autism Foundation is gonna take over Ernie Ellis's um, social media accounts. We did it last year. Um, and we're going to do it again this year. Um, all of the funds raised during Giving Tuesday will go towards this capital campaign for the adult services building. So I would just ask folks, um, whether you're a, an autism fan or a golf fan, spread the word. I think Ernie has something like 130,000 followers um, on his social, just on Twitter, I think, alone. Um, and so we've calculated if we can get 10% of Ernie's followers to donate $100, we'd be very close um, to reaching our goal um, for this kind of 2.0 capital campaign. So spread the word, please uh, share um, on Giving Tuesday. If you're able to donate, wonderful. Um, if you're just able to share with your friends who might be able to donate, um, we're really going to try to push um, to use Giving Tuesday as a platform to get um, to get us to the finish line for this building. And uh, on that note, we want to share that people can learn more and make a donation by visiting our Adult Services Building Capital Campaign page at Ls for Autism All One Word org slash adults. I will also, as well as obtain contact information for other giving opportunities such as in-kind donations. And I'll make sure to share the link on our show notes. Thank you so much, Pam, for being a guest for this uh, podcast episode. And I wish you the best. And we are all really, really hoping that sooner rather than later, the Adult Services Building Capital Campaign Everyone will give a great sigh of relief when it's finished and when everything has been raised to make sure that the building is a reality and 
will help service and serve every one of the population of adults with autism. Well, thank you, Merrick, and thank you, Nate. Uh, appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to participate, and um, thank you both for everything you do uh, for Else for Autism and uh, for our community. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us, Pam. It's great, great talking to you. As usual, we have our Today in the World of Autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Shinnok, and his fantastic research-oriented stories. Merrick, I don't know if it's because this show is so close to Halloween, but that the way you worded, the way you articulated today in the world of autism was especially spooky today. Ooh. <laughs> Let's jump on into it. My first story is titled, It's the Great Blue Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. So I hope everyone out there had a fun and festive Halloween. Last time on the podcast, I spoke about the many great accomplishments of Ruth Sullivan. And one of her fundamental contributions to the field was the creation of the Autism Society, which is a grassroots organization aiming to improve the lives of those with autism in various communities throughout the US. This year for Halloween, this organization stepped up in a major way by providing blue pumpkin trick-or-treat baskets for children with autism in numerous cities around the country, including Virginia Beach and Bowling Green, Kentucky. For children on the autism spectrum or those with sensory awareness disorders, everything from the crowds to the spooky Halloween decorations can be a little bit overstimulating. Additionally, not all children will be able to say trick or treat or adhere to the conventional rules of Halloween. The blue pumpkin baskets, as well as provided cards that say, I can't say trick or treat, but I'm trying, were aimed at helping raise awareness, understanding and acceptance for trick or treaters with autism this year. Many homes within these communities also displayed blue pumpkins to show their support of individuals with autism. Personally, blue is my favorite color. So I'm more than happy to hear about this initiative from the Autism Society. Great work being done there in general. And I know they will continue to help us make great strides when it comes to acceptance and awareness in this community. Merrick, first off, what did you dress as for Halloween this year? And secondly, did you find, uh, how did you find the trick-or-treating experience as a child? Well, I didn't really uh, dress up for Halloween um, this year, but when it came uh, time to entertain the clients of our foundation through a few of the programs that I assist with, I decided to become Cowboy Merrick for a little bit of time with <laughs> my uh, battered down cowboy hat that uh, I just would put on and all of a sudden I'm Cowboy Merrick. So, uh, sorry? Just saying howdy. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeehaw. Um, <laughs> but when I was very, very little, um, I think that it can be very scary um, having doing trick or treating alone. And I I have some really really good memories of being with uh, a kid or two in uh, my neighborhood and basically going from door to door and doing trick-or-treating. Now, I was much older when all of that happened, and I just really appreciated that because um, it's it can be a very anxiety-driven uh, moment. It can... Um, and it can, because it's, you know, dark outside and everything, and it's just, it, it's something that you really, really would rather do with other people around you than to do it alone. And I just, I had a lot of fun, and those are some of my very pleasant memories of growing up. Now, I was able to, I got a little bit lucky in being able to have a friend or two in my neighborhood um, to be able to do these things with. Um, not everyone has that kind of luck. And I think that um, what is especially important about the story uh, you went over, which, I mean, that's a fantastic title. Then again, um, when it comes to comic strips, um, the Peanuts comic strip is my favorite. So I absolutely love the title. It's a great blue pumpkin, Charlie Brown. I think that um, it is really, really great um, to spread awareness and to also empower individuals with autism who may find it more difficult um, to, you know, find a lot of people in their neighborhood to trick or treat with um, or may find it to be very overstimulating um, to be able to know that they have alliances in uh, communities around the U.S. at least. Um, I love the color blue and like you do and Honestly, if I was walking around the neighborhood and I saw blue pumpkins, I would definitely want to take a picture of them because that is so snazzy, as <laughs> the kids would say. Um, yeah. So I, I, I just, uh, I find this to be very heartwarming, and I just, I just feel like that, you know more that that there should be a, a greater feeling of camaraderie uh with individuals who are different during a holiday like halloween because halloween celebrates our differences um, as much as we like to think of halloween as like a a day of horror and that kind of thing you also have to look beyond that and think to yourself okay so you know, the Wolfman is different. Um, you know, Frankenstein's monster is different. Um, 
uh, these are differences that we should celebrate and we should, you know, understand instead of just basically saying, well, you know, th this is, this is what we should condemn. And so, uh, you know, if I happen to have, you know, uh, one of the ears looks a little bit like a bat, um, you know, that's, that's something that you, uh, Halloween should be seen as a celebration of inclusiveness, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. And acceptance of people who have all kinds of differences to them, no matter what it is. And in that way, you know, aren't we all freaks? Aren't we all geeks? Aren't we all, you know, outcasts? Aren't we all in some way, shape or form different to other people, but isn't that something that we should probably celebrate? And what better way to celebrate than having a whole holiday devoted to celebrating it? I there really are always different ways to interpret holidays. And I think that that is a very nice way to celebrate Halloween. Uh, wow, I really appreciate the point you just made. Uh, looking back to Halloween and my experiences as a kid, I know it was a time where, and, and still is a time now where people can convey a lot of self-expression. They can choose to be a superhero or a monster or, um, you know, a baseball player, anything they want. And it's a, it should be a day where, where judgments are not made and, you know, you try to appreciate individuals just engaging in self-expression and, and um, you know, in some ways trying to transform themselves into uh, a figure that they, they admire or that they think is cool. And, um, you know, I think uh, you're, you hit the nail on the head that it could be uh, an opportunity for even more when it comes to uh, being inclusive to, to people who are different and having everyone just get together, enjoy a little bit of cider and, uh, you know, maybe a Reese's peanut butter cup or five as I did this year. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, ended up doing, uh, a special, uh, game with, uh, people in one of the programs I'm a part of. It was a version of Jeopardy. And it was all Halloween themed. And when I used images uh, to display the answers, one of them had to do with sweets and desserts and the like. And I just picked all these like giant versions of candies. So you had like a 26 pound gummy bear as like one of the images. <laughs> because, you know, one of these days I really want to get like, what is it, the one pound Reese's peanut butter cup or something? Like they have some humongous candy out there, and I just like to at least say at one point, I I ate it, I I came, I saw, I conquered the candy, and it just made me feel really really good, and uh, it's it's probably gonna basically give me a sugar high that <laughs> will turn me into a mad scientist for um, a few hours. So you say, you talk about five of them. I'm just thinking about those giant peanut butter cups that you may have seen. 
skip the five. Just give me the five pounder. Yeah, give me give me the give me the ten pound uh, Reese's peanut butter cup. Make <laughs> it like a hamburger or something like that, where instead of a a patty in the middle, it's a it's a Reese's peanut butter cup. Maybe it's the Reese's peanut butter cup patty. And you know. <laughs> Give me that kind of fun, and the lettuce could be like uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, lime-flavored uh, candy, and you know you have the tomato be like uh, cinnamon-flavored. I go for that in a New York minute. Uh, yes, sir. All right. So I don't want to <laughs> keep us too. Uh, obsessed with our love for sugar and our cravings for sweets and candies yeah. so um uh, i know that your next story is very interesting so can you tell our listening audience about that yes we better get started with the next story before we talk about food for the rest of the evening <laughs> and i haven't even had dinner yet so believe me, I'm just basically chewing at the cud for it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, my mouth is drooling just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so uh, since I began taking major interest in the field of autism several years ago, I've heard many accounts of individuals who received diagnoses as adults and how this was often liberating for them, enabling enhanced self-understanding, and to some degree, inner peace. Amongst these individuals include actual well-known autism researchers, Rosanna Lilly and Wen Lawson. I, I hate to interrupt you, but when you say actual autism, are these researchers autistic or are they just researchers with an interest in the subject? Good, good question. I, I should clarify the language there. They are uh, researchers who study autism, and they also have been diagnosed as adults with autism spectrum disorder. That's uh, definitely uh, great to hear. Yeah, know. really interesting. And recently, there was a highly important mixed method research study on this topic that was published in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders a very well-known uh, journal in our field. And this was by a team from Edge Hill University that was led by Dr. Liam Cross. The survey, uh, sorry, the study surveyed 420 autistic and typically developing adults collecting information on age of diagnosis, autistic traits, quality of life, and mental health outcomes. The results showed a negative correlation between age of diagnosis and both quality of life and mental health functioning. Contrary to what may be expected by some of the anecdotal reports, receiving a diagnosis in adulthood versus childhood was generally related to more challenging outcomes. Various reasons for the delayed diagnoses occurred, including cultural misunderstanding, hesitancy of parenting to seek out care, and simply sip, uh, slipping through the cracks of the system. The authors generally concluded that the earlier the diagnosis, the better the outcomes. 
And I want to clarify a point that I mentioned above, which is that um, what I meant to say is, is it's contrary, a little bit contrary to what um, I expected to see based on some of the reports of adults finding a lot of inner peace or a lot of um, clarity from receiving a diagnosis as adults. Um, that's not to say that uh, I expected it to be preferable to receive a later diagnosis. Um, but anyways, Merrick, turning this over to you, we know that early intervention is important and can have a profound impact on later development. But what other factors may be at play here in explaining these findings? Well, as we all know, um, the field of diagnosis, especially when it comes to someone's uh, neurology, always evolves. Like uh, what I've heard uh, not too long ago was that, you know, bipolar disorder used to be a lot more general, but now you have like level one, level two, level three bipolar disorder, that kind of thing. So, you know, what started out as a very general, uh, specific way of, you know, figuring out individuals became such a much more complex and concrete uh, view of people. I, I think, and this is definitely something to be very, very important when considering anything is how the diagnosis of autism has changed and evolved over the years. I may have mentioned this before, but this was important when I was speaking to um, Don Finn and Zucker, who wrote that uh, In a Different Key, the story of autism book, and also worked on the documentary about it. And what they had basically said near uh, deep into the book is about how the symptoms and how the specificity of uh, autism went from being, you know, a general feeling where you have to have really, really distinct characteristics to be classified as such to a greater broadening of the concept to where we now have a spectrum. So basically, um, it's a question as to how I would have been classified in the 60s or 70s compared to what I'm classified as now. And I'm pretty sure that if I was born in the 50s, I may have gotten kind of a different diagnosis or different classification. And I may have been okay with that for decades for who knows how many years and I may not have ever decided to get, you know, a different opinion or a different take on what it was that I have. So I think that um, for many, many individuals who get diagnosed much later in life, I think that if you could see a pattern with them, they're generally um, considered to be, you know, with uh, fewer supports than the general aut autistic population, whatever that is nowadays, um, 
people who are able to, you know, not really be seen in that way or not really to have been seen in that way. Um, and, you know, the definition didn't apply to them at the time. But now with the way things have been and with the way things are, uh, you know, uh, earlier in this broadcast, uh, Pam Minnelli talked about how, uh, you know, the number of individuals with autism, it went from, you know, a rarer statistic to something that's more common. And I think that a good amount of it has to do with how much we brought in the definition of who fits the criteria and who fits that actual classification. I think that the term Asperger's syndrome, as I mentioned before, it really became fully known in 1994. And it actually has only been within the past like seven years, well, rather eight years, since Asperger's uh, got reabsorbed back into the spectrum. So, right. you know, before all of that, people could have been diagnosed with like hundreds and hundreds of different things. And that, that wasn't exactly who they really were, who they really are. And so with the way everything has been brought into a point where you know, we have a better understanding of how to understand people and how to acknowledge people. It this is definitely something that uh, is is important. Um, and sometimes it takes also a revelatory moment, like someone could just be coasting throughout their life, not thinking that there was anything different about them. Then something happens and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I don't know what this is all about, but I got to find out. Um, later uh, during this segment, I will talk about a story of this individual, uh, Billy May Mayfair, who, you know, he went undiagnosed for decades. And then during a time in 2019, all of a sudden, oh, wow. I have to figure out what's going on. And he got his diagnosis in his 50s. Right. So we, we, I think that the best answer to this probably is of the broadening of the diagnosis. And I think that that is one of the most important things to, to know is that what autism was defined as back in the 50s, back in the 60s, isn't how autism is generally defined as now. That, that, it's, uh, that it's more encompassing than it was back then. And so I think that that's a, a very, very important thing to, to realize, especially when I think about myself and from my personal experiences, you know, like, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what I would have been classified as back, like, decades ago. But I, I, and I was born in 86, where people originally thought of me as having PDD, NOS. Then 1994, I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. And, you know, it's, it's always ever-changing until we 
figure out how the best way to treat and to support those who have all kinds of, uh, you know, the human brain is a fascinating thing. It's a really fascinating thing. And it's it just, it, it, there's, there's a lot more going on than what people, you know, think that there is. And that's, that's, uh, that's the, the more we discover and the more we know and the more we learn, I think is of a, is of a fascinating uh, trend towards figuring out how we can help ourselves in the best possible way. Absolutely. Maximizing uh, our potential uh, and the potential of each individual too, no matter what their differences are. I think um, a good takeaway from this study is that, you know, of course, getting a diagnosis early on is optimal so that the interventions uh, can take place during the critical time windows of development. At the same time, you know, there's other research and a lot of anecdotal findings showing that receiving a diagnosis later on in adulthood, um, it can be uh, a very helpful thing for someone's psychological functioning, just knowing that um, maybe if they experience some, some differences throughout their life or they, you know, didn't feel like they quite, um, they quite fit in with the, with the usual crowd of people, then uh, receiving at least some, some clarity as to, you know, why they experience those differences can probably be liberating for those people. But um, some of the, the negative outcomes associated with a later diagnosis, you know, could also be maybe feeling um, alone during key developmental years, not receiving the supports that they need. And um, so uh, it all comes back to, you know, hoping that as a field, we can continue to, to try to find mechanisms for detecting uh, aspects of autism as early as possible. Um, yeah, because if you're like uh, 40 or 50 or whatever, and you're expecting, you know, a revelation or something like that, and then you're like, okay, so I spent so many years doing all this, and, you know, now I figure it out, and I've almost spent half of my life with no understanding and no knowledge of who I really am. And instead of feeling a great sigh of relief, it's like I've wasted half of my life just, you know, not getting what I need to get or not being understood for the person who I am. And it just feels like great. Yeah. So what, what will happen now? And you know, I may not have any family members. I may not have anyone nearby. Um, I may be alone. I, I may have lived this, you know, a life without any friends. And I never knew how I could change that. And it's just basically like, well, great. But, you know, th this doesn't really help me in any way. And so I, I can definitely understand the feeling of strong disappointment if, if you just learn that and 
it may cause like a, a greater sense of depression for people who are just sort of like, okay, it doesn't really matter now, does it? Yeah, you're right. There's that side of it too. There's definitely a potential for that. So I'll hand it over to you now for uh, some great human interest stories. Okay, so um, the first story I want to do uh, has to do with our adult services building capital campaign. I think that it's very important for our listeners to understand how much our adult services department means to us. For our department, we've had a social group, a series of mental health programs, vocational rehabilitation, skills-based training, and recreational programs all meant to support our adult clientele. As an adult with autism, it means a lot to me that we take this population seriously. In order to show how serious we've been taking this project, we have decided to compile a list of facts about the importance of treasuring the adult population that has autism, and how we have made strides in supporting the population through any means necessary. When you read more about our capital campaign, keep these facts in your mind. We hope that our information generates greater excitement at helping us make more dreams come true for our clients and their families and friends. So the first one is over 70,000 youth of autism turn 18 every year in the United States. There is an urgent need for programs for adults with ASD as the prevalence rate of diagnosis continues to rise. This aging population of individuals with ASD requires education around the transition into competitive employment settings, job coaching and vocational rehabilitation supported employment. It is understood that individuals with autism contribute greatly in their employment settings of having a greater degree of skills and requiring less intensive support. Only 25% of individuals with ASD have employment, leaving 75% of these individuals who we have the opportunity to reach giving them the opportunity to lead positive, rewarding, and fulfilling lives. As of the end of November, our adult age training program will serve 18 autistic adults, putting us at capacity for our current space. Upon the completion of the adult services building, we will increase our capacity to serve participants in our adult day training program by 67%. Else for Autism currently engages with 23 different employment partners. 17% of these employment partners actively employ more than one autistic adult. So Nate, what other facts would you like to share with our listening audience about adults with autism? So you covered a a nice broad range here. And (laughs) I don't know that I'll necessarily share facts, but just some tidbits of information that uh, we've accumulated over time. Um, I think a key point when talking about adults with autism is that um, there's so many differences amongst them and what their interests will be and what the most suited occupation for them will be. It's really just like when you think about the broad range of personality types and optimal career paths for, for any individual you know, with, with a disability or typical, um, you know, that is the case for adults with autism too. So um, there, there definitely shouldn't be a one size fits all approach. And I think above all, 
that's probably what I'd like to share, um, you know, without uh, trying to pull together a list of, of additional facts, because I think you covered a lot of good ones here. Oh, come on now. This, this is right within your ballpark. I basically <laughs> did my first story was something you would have done. Got all those figures well, and statistics and research parentheticals and all that stuff. That's something you would have done. Well, you uh, you out researched the researcher on this. Uh, sorry, I can't credit myself. It's really our great team that we have that <laughs> that, uh, that has done the research. So yeah, and I'm sure somewhere right behind all of this, somewhere you were busy. Uh, basically laying the blueprints and the groundwork for all of this. <laughs> That's ter terrific work here. Yeah, yeah. All right. So my next story is about Billy Mayfair and the late autism diagnosis. And uh, the question that I have at the end of this story is actually, you know, it's something that we've talked about throughout this episode throughout this uh, broadcast. But I think it, it may need, you know, to be mentioned, to be uh, a part of this uh, story too. Um, anyways, um, while we as a foundation support the earliest of all intervention services and diagnosis, sometimes any potential diagnosis falls through the cracks, especially for those who are generally classified as higher functioning or those who may need the least amount of support. This span of diversity in what is considered autistic is relatively new and may be useful for individuals who are seeking guidance and help into behaviors that might be divergent or different than the norm. While early diagnoses are crystallization of preparedness, late ones are revelations and epiphanies that can be as effective, but in a different way. It is especially important for women who are a lot less likely to get a correct diagnosis than men do. So let's talk about the pro golfer Billy Mayfair, who at the age of 51 got a diagnosis of ASD and came out of the neuro closet, but decided to open up to a litany of sports publications in the middle of 2021, two and a half years after getting diagnosed to explain himself. Since the age of 14, Billy Mayfair has been a champion in the world of golf. In the 90s, he managed to be the only person to score a win over Tiger Woods during a playoff match and he became the 1995 Tour Champion. He was even featured in Boy's Life as a golf prodigy. Yet he has always had differences. Whether being more literal than others, adhering to routine to a strict degree, how difficult it was to control his emotions, and having a difference in processing speed between his brain and his mouth, the latter was the one that sent him to figure out his diagnosis. During the Champions Tour Invesco QQQ Championship in 2019, Mr. Mayfair was disqualified when his explanations on certain moves he made were classified as inaccurate and misrepresentative. He felt that he was fully in the right, but he didn't know how to articulate his side clearly enough to keep himself in the game. From there, him and his wife went to a number of doctors to figure out what was going on in his mind. His autism diagnosis made him feel relief and has allowed him to feel less ashamed of how his brain works. He has learned how to self-advocate for himself. He has asked for officials to approach him before his first shot, not while he is walking down the fairway in a way that may not just benefit him, but others. 
In fact, in this, in this April 2021 article published by Sports Illustrated, he has mentioned that he wants to support autistic athletes and their loved ones with his life. Nate, as mentioned before, it is important that people get the earliest diagnosis as soon as possible, but what may be some reasons and benefits of people getting a late diagnosis? I really like this story, and it fits well with the story that I presented and that this this is a real life uh, human experience uh, example of what a later diagnosis can do for somebody. And um, to answer your question, so as far as reasons go, when it comes to getting a late diagnosis, I think it comes back to our discussion earlier that there's now a broadened spectrum. There's a lot more increased awareness and screening tools from pediatricians and clinicians alike. And um, on top of that, just parents generally being less aware of it or not wanting to discover uh, that their child was autistic and, and providing them with the necessary resources there. But as far as benefits, of people getting the late diagnosis. I think I'm so excited about progress that we're making um, when it comes to, to not just understanding how the brain works and how much individual variation there can be amongst individuals. But we now have these really amazing tools for actually imaging the brain um, like spec scans, MRIs, and um, on top of that, you know, a technique that allows you to use EEG to image brain activity. And I think for people who maybe they feel like their brain's working differently or their behaviors are different, um, there's a lot of opportunity to actually take a look and see what the brain is doing and how it's functioning. And it sounds like, you know, that's something that, that Billy Mayfair did in consulting with his doctors and um, was really informative for him. And, you know, in some ways it, it allows people to realize that the way they're acting or some of their deficiencies, they're not you know, they're not character flaws. They're not because they're not trying hard enough or because they're not um, engaged enough, but they're literally characteristics going on with their brain that are making it, uh, making some behaviors challenging for them. And so um, the possibility of late diagnosis and the tools that were coming out to now being able to understand um, you know, abnormal characteristics in the brain, it's, it's a great, uh, it's very promising for the future. And, you know, some of the clarity and relief that people experience in knowing that, you know, there is actually something going on with them at a biological level. It's not just uh, a character issue, like I mentioned before. Um, it seems that that can be really relieving for a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, I just, I, I think that in a sport like golf, because, you know, uh, one of our co-founders uh, is a golf pro to action and 
you know, we have this whole game on golf program to actually have, you know, at least one person out there who is, you know, willing to advocate, willing to self-advocate and actually has an autism diagnosis. Um, I think that that is quite incredible and quite amazing. And, you know, I, I just feel like that uh, wh whatever we do as a foundation, you know, it's, it's very important that someone like Billy Mayfair exists because then we know, you know, that, that there's like a role model, someone who could basically, you know, speak about his experiences, um, speak about his triumphs and achievements, and people, you know, anyone who golfs who has autism goes to one of our programs would go, wow, so I can be, so this is the potential I can reach, you know, if I get good enough or if I play for long enough or if I can do anything enough, you know, this is the kind of person who I could be. I could be the next Billy Mayfair, you know, if that means anything to anyone, then that is definitely a great thing to think about. Yeah. Um, there was that one golfer. Um, I forget his full name, um, but he actually, um, you know, if, if one were to characterize him, um, he would have gotten the autism diagnosis too. Um, and I, I really, really hate doing this because, it's like I'm catching myself unprepared, but it was um, Mo something. I, I forget his uh, full name, but but he was like a legend in the sport too. And um, he just, uh, he would have definitely uh, had the diagnosis too. He, he may have even had that near the end of his life, but it, it's just, it's, it's really important that, that we, that when we, you know, plan a sports program or we plan any program and we go for a target population that, you know, a, a little bit of that population is invested or, or is, you know, in some person or some group of people out there who, you know, you, you sort of feel like, yeah, there's, it would be interesting if there was, you know, this kind of synchronicity. Um, I guess that it's in a way kind of like when I found out all, all these uh, rumors and all these comments that the creator of Pokemon, uh, Satoshi Tajiri, um, was found to have Asperger's syndrome. And I thought to myself, well, that's extremely cool. And whenever someone who's, you know, has the same condition as I do and is a fan of Pokemon or knows about Pokemon enough, I'm like, well, yeah, but, you know, this person uh, has been said to have, you know, the same condition that we have. And it just, it, it feels really, really good because if it, you know, the company's name is Game Freak. And if I had to consider myself a freak of anything, it would definitely be video gaming. That's like my 
one of my most important uh, topics, one of my most important hobbies, something that I've really excelled at and something that's like when people talk about special interest in autism, that would definitely be way up there. And so to have learned about Satoshi Tajiri, whether or not how much of it is verifiable at the time, I, I felt like, well, yeah, so that is one of the coolest things I've ever heard because I was obsessed with Pokemon Blue when I was growing up, when I was 16 years old. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, it's, it's like, you know, what, whatever you do, whatever, whatever makes you uh, tick, you know, you find someone and it's like, oh, wow. So that person is, is that kind of thing. Could I ever meet that person? Could I ever talk to that person? Even if, even if that doesn't happen, that's still like a line that's still, you know, some kind of a, a linear narration of history that, that interjects itself into our story or our history as human beings. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I just find, I just remember when I fell upon this story, I was like, how come I've never read this before how come nobody has ever told me about this before and yes it was like april or may but it's like you know to me this is like one of the biggest deals of the year okay so i, I think that that is something that uh you know that that should be uh you know we should toot our own horns about all this stuff so it's a, it's a great story and billy if you're uh, listening to the podcast, Billy Mayfair, we'd love to have you on uh, as a visitor sometime. Yeah. Um, could our <laughs> podcast uh, stand that kind of a celebrity on here? I do not know, but that would be really, really cool. Though. It remains to be seen. And <laughs> the golfer that Merrick was referring to before I believe is Mo Norman, who it, it looks like there's a Bleacher Report article uh, that called Mo Norman the Rain Man of Golf. Yeah, and it was said that at one point, because, uh, you know, for years, the term idiot savant was used, and he was you know, very dismissive of that. So at one point there was like a paper, I don't know if it described him or if it was a definition of, you know, savantism, but he basically took idiot savant and he crossed out the idiot part of it. Um, but, but there have been a lot of speculation that uh, Mo Norman would be uh, diagnosed with autism, or like I said, he may have had it had a diagnosis near the end of his life but that is definitely another person that would be you know that that would you know, if there was like an autism golfer hall of fame i guess he would be in there absolutely all right so um we went through a lot with this episode i believe um <laughs> but um we uh, do want to make sure that anyone who is listening, uh, you know, if you're walking or if you're 
writing or if you're doing anything, uh, we do want to make sure that you're able to get a nice good meal after, uh, like soon without hearing us rant and rave for the next two hours. So, um, but before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in December with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. As usual, we would like to end with a for I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high like a butterfly, I fly into the air so high. Oh, like a butterfly, like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours, you can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind. In the future, your eyes will light up to think that I was once a poor caterpillar. Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly So high Oh, like a butterfly I fly into the air So high Just like a butterfly Oh